doing. Um, so hold the government um, to account. There's a lot we don't know yet um, about the new government's approach to climate, but the you know MPs and the government are already starting to think about the next election. We really need to keep climate action, the fact that the public cares about climate, on their agenda and keep reminding them of that. Welcome to the Renew Our World podcast. Renew Our World is a global movement of Christians who believe that since we are truly image bearers of God, we should act like it, living out love for one another in actions and in truth. Since we are image bearers of God, we won't stand by while our neighbours are trapped in poverty and we won't stay idle as creation is left untended and inequality is left to fester. In this podcast, we're going to go on a journey together of discovering a theology of creation care. We'll be discussing the latest in climate news, chatting with industry leaders, theologians and practitioners and hearing from some of our incredible partners who are working on the ground. Join us this season as we learn about creation care and what we can do in our own lives to play part in a much bigger restorative story. Hi guys and welcome to the last in the second series of the Renew Our World podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this last series which has sort of lasted for just over 12 months really. Started off with um, the COVID situation in Brazil, and uh, we've we've chatted about various different things that have come up in in the climate news in the last, um, I guess, twelve to eighteen months. And we're wrapping up this series with a discussion on the new British Prime Minister, um, Liz Truss, who in the last week has been installed as the the new uh, yeah, the new Prime Minister in for the for the UK. And particularly, we're zoning in on her climate policies and any sort of climate. Credentials, I guess, that that um, people can be expecting from the new the new administration in in the UK, and to to discuss all of these things and maybe some other random bits and pieces that we might get to, I've got Megan Rowland who works for uh, for Tearfund um, with my, along with myself. I won't say too much about Megan, so I'm going to give her a chance to introduce herself um, as well. But Megan, you're very welcome to to the podcast. We're, we're looking forward to chatting to you today. David, that's very nice to be here. Great. I mean, um, Megan, you know, yeah, who, who are you and what is it, what is it that you do? I've, I've given you a, sort of a very brief introduction there uh, that you work for Tear Fund. But um, yeah, what have, you, what have you been doing for Tear Fund for the last couple of years and, and even before that? Um, yeah, so um, I work as the government relations lead um, at Tear Fund. So um, what that means is that um, me and my team, um, we spend our time building relationships um, with MPs, um, members of the House of Lords, uh, civil servants, government ministers um, in order to help bring about policy changes that Tiffin's calling for. Great. And I know before you were doing that, you worked within the political system as well for a while. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I um, I worked for um, a member of the House of Lords um, for a bit at the beginning of my, my career, um, which was a really... Um, sort of great chance to to kind of get an insight into um, into the political system from the inside, um, as well as now um, sort of advocating from the from the outside. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we a lot of political campaigners feel similarly, don't they? It's it's about achieving the change in the policy area, and you can do that maybe from from the inside, working in the system, and from yeah, the outside, um, and yeah, things like that. Uh, but yeah, I guess moving us on to our, our main piece of discussion for today, which is the, the new, new Prime Minister here in, in the UK. Um, 
yeah, and I, I guess we're going to, yeah, we're going to really dial down into them. But I wonder if you could set some, some context for people maybe who are not familiar with the UK political system. You know, how, how did we end up with a new prime minister? And anybody who's been following the news might see that, uh, I guess, you know, there's been a relatively large amount of new prime ministers in the last couple of years for, for, the, for the UK. But yeah, could you set the scene for us a little bit in terms of how we got here? Yeah, uh, how we got here is a really good question, David. Um, so, I mean, people say that a week's a long time in politics um, and it's it's been two months now since things came to head for Boris Johnson. So it feels like, for some of us, it feels like a very long time ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if we go back to um, the 5th of July, um, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, um, who were key members of Boris Johnson's cabinet, um, resigned from the cabinet. Um, and uh, this happened kind of as a result of a series of scandals, U-turns, um, ministers losing faith in the accuracy of the briefings that they were getting from number 10, um, and also a close-run um, Conservative Party vote of no confidence in the Prime Minister, um, which the Prime Minister won very, very marginally. Um, so these two resignations um, then kind of opened the floodgates um, and led to a record number of over 50 MPs with government result, with government roles. So, for example, ministers um, resigning from Boris Johnson's government, stating that they didn't have confidence anymore in his leadership. Um, but Boris Johnson held on in there for a few more days um, until the threat of rule changes by... Um, the 1922 committee, which I won't go into details now on kind of who they are and, and what they do, yeah, but sure. um, essentially they're a, a committee of Conservative MPs um, and they were threatening to change the rules on how uh, Conservative no-confidence votes happen, um, which would have allowed for another vote of no-confidence to take place, which it was pretty clear at that point um, Boris Johnson would lose. Um, and so it was at that point that he he chose to resign on the 7th of July. Um, he then stayed on as caretaker prime minister um, over the summer um, until a new leader was selected. So over the summer, we've seen um, the Conservative leadership contest taking place um, with the two kind of final frontrunners being Rishi Sunak um, and Liz Truss um, until... Um, on Monday, the final votes were in, um, and then on Tuesday, Liz Truss was appointed prime minister. Yeah, it was a it was a, it was a relatively uh, how would you put it long process, I think, wasn't it? It, it? it started off with a big bang, and there was lots of votes, and lots of candidates were eliminated, and then eventually we had this very long drawn out yeah. process where they did lots of hustings, and they were all caught on camera saying saying interesting things at, at <laughs> hustings and and. And, and various bits, but yeah, I, I maybe I'm very pro uh, proportional voting. So it almost felt like the, the Conservative Party were having a proportional voting system when they were knocking out various candidates. It was in in Ireland, you've got PRS TV uh, voting system where people you know have their preference, and then the least candidate with least amount of votes is eliminated, and votes are distributed, and all the rest. So yeah, I almost felt like the Conservatives were giving the country a lesson on you know proportional voting and. And all the rest, but anyway, that's 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 for a different podcast. Um, but so so you mentioned there was two candidates, the final two candidates that went off then and spent the last couple of weeks 
campaigning and doing hustings. So they, they were Rishi Sunak and, and Liz Truss. Was there much of a difference from a climate point of view in terms of the two candidates? I know there was, it, it seemed like maybe from, from observing the race, there wasn't loads of conversation around climate during, during, the, um, during the, the, that uh, leadership hustings section of the, of the selection process. But from what we could tell, was there much of a differential between the two candidates? Yeah, so not really. Um, like you said, climate change didn't really come up very much in the leadership contest. Um, they both committed to maintain the net zero by a 2050 target. Um, they also, on the flip side, both said they were back fracking where the local communities supported it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both spoke out about how much they love recycling. Um, the main difference um, between them, though, was that Liz Truss um, saying that she would suspend the green levies, um, which are um, basically they're a portion of UK household and business bills um, that um, kind of then um, are contributed to environmental um, strategies. Um, so um, as part of her plan to ease the cost of living, she she promised that she would suspend those. Um, other than that, um, it, the contest, as you said, David, is remarkably quiet on climate policy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I guess, I guess that leads us into a position now where Liz Truss has been. She's won that uh, election race, and she's now become the prime minister. And now we're getting a first look at some of her policies. And obviously, the big issue at the moment in the UK and significantly across the European continent, obviously a little bit less so in, in, in the US and different places for different reasons, um, there's a significant issue with uh, energy price rises at the moment, which is which is really, I think, crystallised a lot of people's view of us being addicted to fossil fuels in terms of energy sources and and and, and that kind of that debate. The green debate is, is very much a part of that energy price issue and, and inflation that comes with it. I guess while we're still waiting to see how she'll do, you know, you know, we we know some some information at the moment, but we're still waiting to see a bit more about what she's going to do in terms of the energy crisis. What what do you think, from what we know so far, how will that likely impact the UK's dependence on fossil fuels and, yeah, and just just in generally in terms of climate policy, how that's going to going to interplay with each other? Yeah. So. Um, as I said, Liz Truss has promised to suspend the green levies. Um, and um, yeah, she's not made it clear. So those, those, those levies um, help to fund a range of environmental policies and she's not made it clear how she would fill the gap of funding those policies. Um, she has also said that she doesn't want to only tackle the cost of energy. She wants, because she sees that as a sticking plaster, she also wants to solve the supply side of the energy crisis. Um, and, um, but how she's kind of been saying she will do that is by authorising new oil and gas exploration, um, as well as lifting the moratorium on, flat, on fracking, um, whether it's support from the local community. Um, she has said that renewables will feature in, in this plan um, and that she's supportive of renewables in uh, what she says in, in the right place. Um, but she 
uh, yeah, she has been less positive in how she's spoken about them. She commented in the Cheltenham hustings um, how she hates to see farmers' fields filled with solar panels um, and would like to see them revert to food production. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's probably fair to say that we'll be seeing a maintaining, if not an increase, in fossil fuel use in the UK. Yeah. To, to me, it seems that there's a little bit of a discrepancy between you know, those sort of, sort of policies maybe around, you know, using farmland for, for agriculture rather than, say, you know, solar panels, right? So that's that's one example. And it doesn't seem that those sort of policies would be compatible with net zero, you know, by, you know, by, I think we're, I think we're still at net zero 2050, aren't we, in the UK? So yeah. it, does, is it, do you think it's fair to say that we're still in a position where the, the policies that are being implemented are not going to get us on track for net zero by 2050 you think that's fair to say we still we still need to see um i guess more action rather than than talk in terms of in terms of net uh, net zero yeah so um i mean there's already concerns being raised that the action that is being taken is is not getting us on track for net zero by 2050 um and environmental groups um have been calling for kind of front-loading the progress towards net zero rather than leaving it all to the last minute. Um, I think, um, yeah, obviously, if we increase our fossil fuel use, that that is not going to help us in the progress progress towards net zero. Um, so yeah, it is it is worrying for the progress, but um, equally, it is in law. Um, so. There is a requirement for us to meet net zero by 2050. Um, the um, government is working on the steps towards that. Um, and there is a requirement for them to do that. Um, it's requirements for them to meet certain goals every year. Um, so it would be difficult for a complete kind of backslide on that. And I don't think from what we've seen so far, I don't think that is what we will see, but I think it, probably we will be seeing a bit of a slowing of progress um, if that kind of ex additional exploration of fossil fuels is the route that we go down, which looks like that is likely yeah. to be what yeah. this trust's government will be doing. Yeah. And I guess that maybe takes me into my next question, which would be around the, the COP processes. Obviously, the UK has hosted COP last year in Glasgow, and we're just around the corner now from from COP in uh, in Egypt, which is which will be taking place in, in November, I did note that the uh, COP president has been reappointed to the cabinet, which I guess was probably always going to happen, given <laughs> you know the UK is is, is still um, the president up until we get to to November. Yeah, it would but, have been a bizarre choice not to reappoint him with yeah, a few yeah. more months to go. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But do we do we know in terms of uh, the new prime minister? Has she made any commitments in terms of COP and the COP processes and the sort of the big UN international processes? Do we know how maybe the UK might position itself in negotiating talks, maybe, you know, in November and in, in Egypt and, and, and beyond that even? Yeah, so this is one of the things that isn't really clear yet. Um, Liz Truss was, was supported by COP26 as Foreign Secretary. Um, and um, at the time, she affirmed the aims of, you know, delivering clean infrastructure for developing countries, of keeping on track for 
um, 1.5. Um, so, but other than that, you know, her kind of mode of operation as foreign secretary was very much to delegate a lot out to her ministers. Um, and so we haven't really seen a lot of comment from her on the COP26 process in her previous role as foreign secretary. So it's kind of difficult to anticipate where she might stand as prime minister. Um, it might be helpful um, because of that, I think, to look at um, her wider views on climate. Um, although that's also a bit of a mixed bag. Um, so she's told us um, that she was an a environmentalist before it was fashionable um, mm -hmm. and kind of growing up, went on marches against CFCs and damage to the ozone. Um, like we've already talked about, she committed to the net zero target and um, she also, during the leadership contest, signed up to the Conservative Environment Network's Conservative Environment Pledge, um, which um, the pledge stated that care for the environment is called conservatism. Tackling environmental problems is not in conflict with economic goals. So that's something that she has signed up to. Um, she's also created uh, the role of a climate minister attending cabinet. So what that means is if you, you know, you kind of imagine the secretaries of state are, you know, kind of like directors in an organization and this trust is the CEO. Um, uh, then kind of your normal average ministers are then the managers under that. Um, but a um, minister attending cabinet um, is basically like a manager that gets to go to the directors meeting. Um, so, yeah. so what what it means is that, you know, there is somebody sitting in the cabinet who has a role where their portfolio is focused completely on climate. Um, and the person she's appointed for that, Graham Stewart, does have a good record on climate. So that is, that is an encouraging thing. Um, on the flip side, she's, uh, she's made it clear that fossil fuels, as we've already talked about, are, are part of her energy plan. Um, and a few of her key appointments uh, are actually people who don't have a great record on climate. Um, but I think also uh, something that you know, is probably good for, especially for your listeners, um, to remember is that the, um, 20, so the 2019 Conservative Manifesto was uh, the greenest ever, um, and that's the mandate that she has from the British public. Um, so um, there hasn't been another general election that is still the mandate that the, um, the Conservative government has from, the, from Britain, from the British public, from the election. Um, so although, you know, she has actually already said that she'll go against the commitment in the manifesto to maintain the moratorium on fracking, um, the manifesto is something that the public can hold her to. Mm -hmm. And I guess that takes me to my next question, which is thinking, thinking domestically again. Where do you think climate campaigners need to be putting pressure on this government in the next two, two and a half years? The, the term should, you know, by law, it'll, it's still got another two, two and a half years to roll. Where do you think climate campaigners need to be campaigning on in the next little while? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is keep campaigning. Um, so hold the government um, to account. Uh, as we said, there's a lot we don't know yet um, about the new government's approach to climate. Um, but 
the you know MPs and the government are already starting to think about the next election, which you know, as you said, David is is expected to happen in in twenty twenty four. MPs and government have that on their mind, and because of that, they you know they're going to be even more aware of what they're hearing from the public, from the electorate. Um, so we really need to keep climate action, the fact that um, the public cares about climate on their agenda and keep reminding them of that. Um, on specific policies, um, as the current COP26 president, the UK's actions in the coming days and weeks um, are key to securing um, a lasting and tangible legacy from COP26 mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah, a safer future for people who are most affected by climate crisis. Um, so in particular um, on that, we need to see the UK taking action um, and encouraging other countries to take action um, on um, the overdue climate finance promises. Um, so that's the 100 billion annually that's been promised by wealthy countries. Um, and that needs to be including the shortfalls um, from payments from recent years um, and with 50% of that going to adaptation. Um, and we also need to see progress on um, finance for loss and damage. Um, on the sort of more domestic side, um, on energy production, um, the climate crisis, uh, cost of living crisis, the energy security crisis, um, they're, they're affecting everybody. But um, in all cases, it's people in poverty who are affected the most. Um, and um, we really need to invest in a resilient, um, clean energy future. Um, that means there shouldn't be new oil and gas. Um, and it means that we should be scaling up cleaner, cheaper renewable energy. Um, renewables are now six times cheaper than fossil fuels to produce. So climate campaigners should you know, be pressing, keep pressing um, the government to scale up on renewable energy and hold them to account on fossil fuels. Um, that's really important. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for that, Megan. I guess my final question for you is: is it's a it's an it's an adjacent issue to to climate, but also is is quite 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 related to it. In the last term of this government, because of the well, I suppose under potentially under the cover of the COVID response, we we had the um, re- reduction in. Money that was going to be spent on overseas development assistance from 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 the government, and we, we also saw the the merging of um, DFID Department Department of um, I guess it's the for people who don't who aren't familiar with the acronyms, it would be the the British government's aid you know aid program, and that was then merged with the Foreign Office, so it was merged in with the wider briefing of of what the British government might want to do in the in the realms of, of foreign affairs. Is there any sign so far that potentially that DFID might be restored, that there might be a separation again of those two departments? You know, previously the international development minister would have sat at cabinet and it was it had its own briefing and its own budget. Is there any sign of that happening or is that still um, unlikely to happen in the next next couple of years? Um, so, no, I don't think we're going to see DFID coming back. Um, I think even... Um, sort of opposition MPs um, have moved on from from talking about that now. Um, yeah. But um, Liz Truss has created um, another minister attending cabinet, 
Um, so, and this is a Minister for International Development. Um, so this is, this is really positive. It's something that the aid sector has been calling for since DFID was merged with the um, Foreign Office. Um, and it means that development will have a voice at the table. Um, on the aid budget, um, Liz Trust has made commitments to honour the current pledge to return to 0.7, um, which, sorry for your listeners, um, so the UK has a legal commitment to um, contribute 0.7% of its GNI um, to aid spending every year. Um, and um, yeah, the commitment is currently to, that's been reduced to 0.5% percent of GNI um, and uh, Liz Truss has said that she will return to that when the fiscal situation allows but um, the restoration of that is it is linked and it is dependent on the UK meeting its fiscal rules um, and that means no borrowing for day-to-day -day spending and debt falling. Um, Liz Truss has said that her economic approach will involve cutting taxes and borrowing which could mean that we don't meet those fiscal rules and um, so that would then have implications for ODA being restored sorry um, that's uh, official development assistance so the aid budget um, being restored in uh, 2024 has been expected um, ODA is also linked to GNI so as I said it's the percent of GNI so if the UK experiences a recession um, as is predicted for next year ODA will also decrease in line with that so um, it might seem like the UK's economic policies don't necessarily impact the aid budget, but actually it does because depending on, you know, what level of recession we do or don't have as a result of the economic policies Liz Trust puts in place um, will affect how much money goes into the aid budget. Um, some positive signs, though, that we, we have seen is that, you know, Liz Trust has, as Foreign Secretary, kind of raised concerns around the, the impact that the Ukraine war has had on the aid budget and has called for additional funding. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's, there's a bit of a question mark there. Is, is that something that she will action as prime minister or, or, or not? Um, so that's something that kind of remains to be seen. Okay, yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting food for thought. So um, still, still plenty of campaigning to be done on, on that front as well. Yeah. Well, Megan, I want to thank you for, for joining us on this episode. It's been really interesting to hear the current state of play with, uh, I guess, with climate policy and, and the new government. So, yeah, yeah, fingers crossed things move in a, in a slightly more positive direction, maybe over the next next two years, I guess. And, um, yeah, we, we'll keep on campaigning, keep on trying to, to pressurise uh, where where we can. Uh, but, yeah, I just want to thank you for joining us today. And uh, it's been really, really interesting to, to chat to you. Thank you very much, David. It's been lovely to join you. Great. And, and this wraps up, as I said, our, our second series of the, of the podcast. And the, the, the breaking news for you is that you will get a new podcast host in the next series. Um, so I am unfortunately leaving, leaving um, my current job, which means that there will be a new podcast host coming in for the third series. And uh, we'll be back with you in October before COP. And we shall we'll kick off the next series with a look at a deep dive into COP as well and what people can expect from from this year's uh, annual COP COP conference. So for now, this is uh, goodbye from me, and uh, I look forward to becoming 
a more avid listener, not just a podcast host of this podcast going forward. Um, but until then, uh, we shall see you, see you the next time. Well, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Renew Our World podcast. To learn more about the Renew Our World campaign or to hear about some of the work that our partners are doing, make sure you jump on over to our website at renewourworld.net. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss a podcast episode again.